You know, the best part of that is, is I just thought about who's here next week, who I can ask to pray. And that's Katie's new boyfriend. So he, we'll, we'll see, we'll see how that goes. That might be a really good time. You'll all meet Katie's new boyfriend and he'll pray for me. It'll be fun. <laughs> so, um, let's go to God's word. You, uh, you heard me talking to the kids. Um, not very well uh, this morning when they were up here. And uh, I asked them to fill in the blank. I give you a word. What do you think? And their, their word is obviously, you know, the instant response is presence and, and gifts. I was going to do that with you. But you guys are in church and it's Sunday and I'm a preacher. And you know how the question, the answer to the question when I ask you a question in church is always... Jesus, right? So I knew how that would go. So asking very honest young children worked a little bit better. Um, and that they sort of share, this is the idea that we get of, of Christmas. If I were to walk down actually to Albertsons and Panera, just down here a little bit, it'd be interesting to see what their response would be to that question if I asked different people. I'm sure there are some people there who would think Christmas obviously, you know, moves us to think of Jesus. But oftentimes we get, you know, that Christmas moves us to think of parties or gifts or, or the decorations or presents. Um, and it seems like every part of our culture and our world wants to take a little bite and make a little space in Christmas so that they get sort of a voice or a part of the story. I actually was just watching uh, some sports yesterday afternoon. And do you know that one of the great ways that you can celebrate Christmas this Christmas on December the 25th, if you would like, and that is to turn on your television and watch 12 straight hours of NBA basketball, because they are setting aside 12 straight hours of NBA basketball on Christmas Day. So if you want to truly find the meaning of Christmas, watch uh, dunks and other things that go on in the basketball court, um, because obviously they're, they're looking for a place and a voice uh, to, to get into what Christmas is all about. In our story, passage from Luke 2 this morning, we have the same sort of thing. We have someone who's really making a space for their name or for the, a spot for themselves in Christmas, but God has other plans. Would you turn with me to this, uh, the story of Christ's birth? Luke chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. The story of the birth of Jesus begins like this. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was the governor of Syria, and everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. So right from the beginning of the story, and a little side here, Luke 
chapter 2, verses 1 through 20, is easily the most detailed of all descriptions of Christ's birth. There's another one in Matthew, but it's significantly smaller, doesn't fill in as many details. Mark has nothing, and John has nothing. So we have, we have really our story of Christmas from these two Gospels, and then we get the most specific one here. And here's the place where we hear about the power that is, has, has, a, has a voice into the story, and that's Caesar Augustus, the Roman Empire. Right from the beginning, we hear his name. And he calls a census of all of the Roman Empire, and at this point, the Roman Empire is pretty powerful. It's pretty broad. It's, it's thousands of miles wide, a, a thousand miles north to south at least. There's lots of people. It's, in fact, most of the known world of the day. And so Caesar Augustus wants to know how many people are as part of his empire. Why would he want to know that? What's, what's important about knowing how many people? Well, there's this thing called taxation, right? And if you as a, a ruler want money for your programs or your empire or, I don't know, to make a gold bathtub, you have to find it from the people who are subjects of yours. And Caesar Augustus was trying to discover exactly what to say to Quirinius, the governor of Syria, on April 15, when it was tax day, and said, here's what you need to give me, because I know how many people live in your area, so this is what the taxes you bring to me. So the whole story of the birth of Christ is shaped and formed by a quest for selfish power on the part of Caesar Augustus. And what's interesting about how this works out is that the biggest power of that day is this small, little, itty-bitty town. This itty-bitty town of Bethlehem is only about... 20 miles south of Jerusalem, but from Nazareth, from, from Galilee, where Joseph and Mary were from, it's about a three-day journey. It's about 80 miles. You go south and you go a little bit west in order to get to Bethlehem. And this is a forgotten town. There's really only between 300 and 600 people in that day. Uh, they've done archaeological digs and they found that really the, the limits of the town were enough to hold at, at most 600 people. It's a small little out of the way place. But it's an important place. Because it's a place that God wants to use. And God had wanted to use it for a very long time. Turn with me, if you would, just a little bit before the beginning of the New Testament to Micah chapter 5. Micah chapter 5, uh, Micah is one of those minor prophets that means he's going to be hard to find for you. Uh, you're looking just be, uh, before Nahum, I love that name, and just after Jonah, and you're going to find Micah. And we're looking at Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Micah chapter 5, verse 2 simply says this. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. 
Now, you're going to, uh, you know, read that passage and you're going to think to yourself, oh, not such a big deal. I mean, you know, God is fulfilling prophecy in Jesus. You know, he does that all the time. In fact, you see it over and over in the life of Jesus that he, he quotes that this is in or, or the, either that he quotes or the text quotes, this is in order to fill, fulfill what the prophet has said. But for us to hear that here in the birth of Jesus, that although Caesar Augustus is this great ruler with really more influence and power than anyone else in the world, he has designs in order for this whole thing to take place so that he gets more money out of it, that within that, God has been faithful to things that he said to his people hundreds of years ago because God is a God of, he's a God of covenant, right? We call constantly call him a covenant God out of the the line of of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He's been faithful to his promises over the years. And here's what we're hearing in the birth of Jesus is that God continues, even now in the birth of Jesus, which will change everything, to be a covenant God. No matter if there's other power at work, fine, most powerful man in the world, try to get your money. Fine person who can change everyone's, you know, everyone's existence. Do whatever you want. You made that choice a couple days ago. God's been at work since the beginning of time. This story is God's fulfillment of one of his promises, but he hasn't stopped living into them. Which means that as we read the story... And as we read the continued story of Jesus, what we're hearing is God's love for you and me as his people in constantly fulfilling his promises, even if he has to use powerful, selfish people in order to fulfill his promise. He can do it. The reading continues. Verse six. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, again, this is, this is one of those things where we have been shaped and formed, especially in most of our lives, by the last 50, 60, 70 years of media content and telling the story of Christmas, right? Who remembers those stop animation things, the Christmas specials from of old, like the ones that they had, Here Comes Santa Claus, and they, you know, uh, all the different ones that show these different Christmas stories, and from the, the time of those beginning, we've been shaped and formed by them. I remember watching one about the story, the actual story of Jesus. And this whole story was told that Jesus and Mary were coming. And of course, they were coming on what? What are you coming on Bethlehem to, uh, to Bethlehem on? A donkey? That's not true. Well, at least it's not in the text. We have no idea whether or not there was a donkey involved, but that's a nice little image. So they come into Bethlehem, and we have this image of Bethlehem being like there's this nice little circle of houses, and there's one house in the middle of town that has a little sign on the front. What does the sign say? The inn, right? And then they go up to the door, and the innkeeper comes out, and he's a crabby old guy. They're always crabby old guys, innkeepers. And he comes up to, they come up to the door, and they say, do you have a room? And he says, of course, no, I don't have a room. You're late. There's no room in the inn. 
But then, of course, you have to have the innkeeper's wife who looks out and sees the pregnant person and pregnant woman and says, and has compassion on her and says, well, we don't have any room in the inn, but we have a stable in the back. You can go into the stable and then you can have the baby there. And then you get the whole story and eventually you get the nice little angel voices at the end with the star shining down and the baby is born. That, the possibility of that being truly what happened is absolutely none. None. Okay, it did not happen that way. I can say that with, uh, they call it archaeologically, 99.999% certainty. What we do know is we do know that there was no room in the inn. But what is the inn? The Greek word is the word kataluma. And the inn, which could be, kataluma could be translated to mean a place that you would hire a room. So it could be that place. But it is probably, you know, in fact, it is for sure in this context a different meaning. A cataluma was an extra room that people would have in their houses. And that extra room was made specifically and expressly for the purpose of hosting an unexpected guest. Because we know, especially in the Old Testament, that hospitality was incredibly important to God's people. If you had to welcome the stranger, you had to welcome the orphan, you had to welcome the, the alien within your gates. And so for you to have a room that was a part of your house to welcome someone who was a, a, an unexpected guest, was, it was necessary you had a cataluma. But what we hear here is that there's no room in the cataluma, which is striking. Because... What is, where is Joseph from? Where is he from? No, he's not. That's where he lives. Where he's from? Bethlehem. This is his family town. This is a homecoming. So, of the 300 to 600 people who live in Bethlehem, what is the possibility that some of them are family? It's 100%. People didn't just move around. So there's a 100% chance that there's family in Bethlehem. But there's no room in the Cataluma. Why not? If someone came to your house and they were family and they had a pregnant wife, would you welcome them? You would unless the pregnancy was illegitimate. It's an illegitimate pregnancy. Mary and Joseph coming to town is embarrassing. For the family to say, there's no room in the Cataluma, wasn't just a, a, a speaking of a reality. is very much probably a rejection of the behavior that they thought had occurred. And this is the world that Jesus is born in. See how God comes? God comes in the rejected. God comes in the mean and lowly places. God speaks of his existence into worlds where he may not even be welcomed. Which is striking. Especially when we think about how other children are born and what happens then, right? 
my, in my family, my oldest daughter, Katie, is the oldest grandchild on both sides. And it was a monumental event when she was born and there were celebrations. And even to this day, there are some times when we just wonder how, you know, Katie just seems to get extra special attention sometimes, unfortunately, because she's the first grandchild on both sides. Think about even in your own family, how were children welcomed? How excited were your parents and your grandparents and the community when the child was born? Bishops, you have to look, you get to look forward to this, this community celebrating with you. You don't have to have the baby in the quiet like Joseph and Mary did. What about even Catherine and William having their child, right? Prince George. What happened that day? Well, instantly, suddenly it's on, it's on Twitter, it's on Facebook, it makes the front cover of People magazine. It's something that gets broadcast worldwide in a split second. Why? Because the future king has come. The future king has arrived. The lineage is sure. Jesus comes and no one knows. Because it's backwards. It comes in a place of rejection. It comes in a quiet spot. Now, we don't know how this all worked then. What's probably true is that Joseph and Mary ended up getting part of the common room in the home. Common room in the home was a place where meals were prepared. Maybe there were, there were other things there, but certainly the animals would be present. It was part of the home, which means there would be a manger there. So we continue to read. Reading at verse 8. And there were shepherds living in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. The angel of the Lord appeared to them. The glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people today in the town of David. Savior has been born to you. He's Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Now again, to ask the question, who's now a part of the story of the birth of Jesus? And I've spoken about the shepherds before, but the shepherds really, I'm trying to draw a parallel in our world, and I can't come up with much, except maybe if you think about how you, you know, what your perception of is those, of those people who on the freeway have the orange vests who are picking up the trash. Think about your perception of those folks. That's, that's shepherds. That's shepherds class. They're the lowly. Probably kids between the ages of 12 and 21 at the very oldest. They were, they were folks who in some ways were banished. Go to the hills and care for the sheep because we don't want to deal with you. And they would be rough because they would be just living the life that was rather nomadic. Moving from field to field. And I've seen the fields of Israel. It's hard to find good pasture. So they're moving around a lot. They probably didn't have much of a sense of home. They certainly wouldn't have had much of a sense of supervision. They were probably wild kids. And these are the people that God shows himself to through the angels. Imagine that conversation, right? Michael the archangel talking with the father saying, Christ is coming. Please, let's see 
Let's, let us do our job. We'll be the messengers. We'll tell somebody. Let, let, send us to Jerusalem. We'll tell the king. No. We'll send us to the temple then. We'll tell the Pharisees, the Sadducees. We'll tell the scribes. We'll tell all the folks there. They'll get the word out. Nah. You want to go bigger. I understand. Send us to Rome. We'll go meet with Caesar. It'll be fun to wake Caesar up. And we'll tell him. He'll tell the whole known world. No. God, where do you want us to go? Here. (laughs) You know who those guys are, right? Those are shepherds. I mean, is there a big house nearby that you want us to go meet or someone important? No. There. But everyone rejects them. The only people that they would tell are the poor and the rejected. That's why I want you to tell them first. That's why I want you to go and worship in their presence so they can hear the story of the coming of the hope of the world. It's interesting that God shows up to these folks because exactly, who, who would they tell? Who would they speak to? Who do shepherds rub shoulders with? If you're walking down a road and a group of shepherds are coming, you get to the other side of the road because they're rough. And they're probably saying things that you don't want your kids to hear. They're probably doing things that are dirty or filthy or things that you don't like. Who are they going to tell? They're going to tell people who are just like them. The people who are rejected. The people who are isolated. The people who are poor. The people who are forgotten. Because that's who the gospel is shown to. That's the hope of the coming of Jesus Christ. It's to the humble. It's to the lowly. To the rejected, to the poor. To the isolated. The forgotten. That's where the story begins with the shepherds. And we hear it. And and what's funny is, if we think about it long and hard enough, we realize we're right with them, don't we? We may not be financially poor, but I know there are certainly times when I'm poor in spirit, when I'm lonely. There, there, I may have plenty of friends, but there are certainly times when I have felt rejected. I, forgot, I felt forgotten, lonely, isolated. The truth is that when I sit and talk with some of you, it doesn't take long if we ask the right questions that all of us at some point have felt that exact feeling. Loneliness, isolation, rejection, poverty. All of these things that Christ comes for and the story is spoken into. This story is for us because we are the poor, we are the lonely, we are the rejected, we are the isolated. And I know there's some of you, you look across the room and you see that person and you think, they're so together. They've got it all together. They've got the right marriage, they've got the right kids, they've got the right family, they've got the right job, they've got the nice car, they've got the nice house. 
believe me. I've been in those spaces with many of those people as they shed tears of loneliness, rejection, and brokenness. The gospel is for us because we are rejected and lonely, isolated, and poor. And we hear the story start to go out. Verse 13, suddenly, a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. Now, I want you to think for a moment about who's saying this. These are angels. The angels are created beings of God. They're not eternal. God only is eternal. They're created beings of God. But they are the most powerful things that the world has ever seen through God's power that are created things. These things, when they show up and they say, fear not, they're actually, that's not a warning, that's a prescription because every time they show up, they're scary. They're big, they're glorious. When they show up on the mountains, armies of thousands scatter in fear. These are beings who can do incredible, amazing, extraordinary things that you and I, in our existence, can't even think of nor imagine. And they are saying, the one who has come, we don't even hold a candle to. We can proclaim the glory of God. We can sing his praises, but we can't bring peace on earth like he can. He, he shows a glory that we can't even stand to be in the presence of when it is in his fullness. These are the most powerful, amazing things that you have ever seen. And they are saying, folks, glory to God. Look at this thing that God has done because it's incredible. The angels knew the hope offered in Christ and they couldn't hold back. This was worth shouting about. What about you? But they're not the only ones. Oh, little word, by the way. We think that the angels sing a song. We sing, they sing a song, don't they? Do they sing a song? Look at the text. What does it say? It says, they were praising God and, what does that say? Is that a song? There's other words for songs, believe me. It could be singing. I don't know. They were praising God. It's possible. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised by it, but we've also inserted part of the story there, and we need to be careful when we insert something into the story. It's very possible, and I like the idea of angels singing because it'd be a fun song to listen to. It'd be amazing, but we're not sure, okay? Just a little note about that. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off, found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what they had been told, what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. Shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Um, 
I go on social media, many of you know that, and what's interesting is to watch what you folks share, right? We share things, maybe not things that we've originally written, but we've seen something or read something and we share it. Why? Because oftentimes, and you people, you people drive me crazy who share those recipes because they are so unhealthy three quarters of the time. You share a recipe and I'm really hungry for it, but I know it's horrible for me and it's going to kill me a slow, painful death. So I see that you, you share something that you're excited about trying as a recipe. Or maybe you're sharing a picture that you think is funny, a meme that you made you laugh. Or you're sharing something that is a good story. Or you're sharing a blog post that touched your heart. You're sharing a devotion that that meant something to you, taught you something, spoke to you. When you hear something good, you share it. The shepherds have heard something good and they're sharing it. They went away from Bethlehem having seen the thing that they saw. And we don't know what they saw. I'm try, I try to imagine that picture of the shepherds going in to Bethlehem. Now, you, you imagine you're Joseph's dad. And I don't know if he was there or not, but you're Joseph's dad. And all of a sudden, there's a knock at the gate. Hey! Hey, we're here! And you look out, and there's like seven or eight shepherds. And you're like, I don't even want to run into you in town. What are you at my house for? And they're like, well... We heard something happen here. There's a baby and it's wrapped in claws and lying in a manger. How do you know that? Because someone told us. Who told you? Well, angels? Oh yeah, that's going to go well. But they come in. And they look. And I, I don't know what they saw. They saw something. I'm assuming they saw a beautiful newborn baby. With mom holding the baby that she loved. And maybe that was what they saw. And in it, they saw love. They saw God loving the world in this beautiful picture. And maybe none of them had ever seen that before. And when they saw it, they said, wow. Did you see that? This is God showing up. Click, share. We got to go tell people. We got to go share it. God has shown up in this beautiful picture of love and the world needs to hear it. So who do the shepherds go tell? They go tell anyone who would listen. But remember, who's going to listen to a shepherd? Are the, are the powerful, are they going to go to the governor's house? Is Corinius going to welcome them at his door? Sure, tell me about the angels on the mountain who told you about the baby in a manger in some town that I've never heard of. That'll be a great story. They tell anyone who will hear. And it's probably the prostitute. Why? Because she would have been rejected. It's probably the widow. Why? Because she would have been lonely and no one would visit her. If a shepherd came, she'd probably receive him and say, come on in, because I don't see anyone else. Probably would have been maybe even the ones who are outside the city walls. The lepers, the unclean, the healthy. Why? Because they're in the shepherd's world. 
The shepherds would tell those who would listen, and those who would listen first were the ones who needed hope the most. This was a story of God's love showing up, and the way it shows up, it reminds those who are poor, rejected, lonely, isolated, forgotten. It comes to those people and reminds them, you are loved of God. You are his child. He came for you. God so what? Loved the world. That he sent his one and only son. And then he says, okay, this is how I sent my love. Now go and do likewise. <laughs> Look for those people in your world who are lonely, isolated, rejected, forgotten. The poor, the broken. The ones who have no one who visits them. Folks, and I, I mean this with all love in my heart, the reason why there are so many people who look forward to the deacon's dinner like we had last night, because it's the only dinner they get invited to all year. We have those people here in our community. They may be sitting beside you. And they may look like someone that you spend your entire life with. The story is for them. Christmas is the time for us to show the love that God sent to the humble, lonely, rejected, forgotten. Because it's our story and it's a story for us because we're those people. I want to close the message this morning asking for your indulgence. And I know that scares some of you because when you indulge me, you never know what's going to happen, which I sort of like. I'm going to ask uh, for you to walk with me just for a moment down memory lane. And there are those of you who, when I tell a story, you think I exaggerate. I have no idea why. I always tell the complete and utter truth. Um, but I have proof this morning because my sister is here. She can verify it. When I was a kid at Christmas... Between, let's say, December 1st and Christmas Day, every Saturday, something Christmassy would usually go on. Some days it was decorating and going to get the Christ or going to get and decorating the Christmas tree. Some days it was, um, I don't know, going outside and doing um, snow forts or whatever. We lived in small town Ontario, Canada, and yes, there were wonderful Christmases of of, of beautiful snow outside. Um, oftentimes it involved baking and my mom would bake stuff and she'd get out all the ingredients and go to the grocery store. She would bake things and we would have Nanaimo bars. Remember Nanaimo bars? Anyone remember? Oh, I love those things. That was like, that was like addicting and they didn't affect me at all. And sugar cookies that we would decorate with royal icing and sprinkles and gingerbread men that we would put our things on. And then we'd make a gingerbread house with like more candy and icing and gumdrops and you can shake a stick at. And those were always neat times. And I can remember sitting at the table and you, you got to do the best thing in the world when your mom was baking. What's that? It's lick the spoon. And I would even like, you know, those blender things. I would lick those and all that. It's so good. Wonderful memories. But one of the best memories of Christmas, we had a record player, vinyl. Anyone remember vinyl? Well, I guess it's coming back now, so you know what vinyl is. We had a record player, and we would play Christmas records, but then we found one Christmas record, and it changed our world. 
Salty's Christmas Calamity. Does anyone remember Salty? Like everyone at the first service remembered Salty. None of you people remember Salty? You got, or some of you. Okay, all right. Well, the rest of you, you missed out. I mean, you want schmaltz, 80s Christian media? It was so schmaltzy, it was awesome. Salty, not kidding you. You're going to think it's ridiculous. Salty is a person, well, not really a person because he stands, but he's the spine of a book. And there's literally a hymn book that grows out the back of him. And he has songs that he can flip and kids sing the songs. And it's like a perfect little backstory to Salty being a part of all the shenanigans of kids over the years. And, and there was Salty's Christmas Calamity. And we listened to that for hours on end. We, in fact, over time, we wore out the record. My mom had to replace it because if you can wear out vinyl, I don't know if you knew this, we found this out. Eventually, it starts to sound weird because you play it so many times that the grooves get impacted. We played it so many times, that's exactly what happened. And we listened to these songs, and these songs... Of course, my, it drove my mom and dad nuts because we would listen to it so many times. They got stuck in your head. And they, they never go away, like ever. It was funny this week, Beth and I were talking about this and, and she said, oh yeah, I remember that. And I started singing the song like right away. And I hadn't thought of it in probably 20 years. And it was right there because it's still in my brain. And now I'm going to give it to you. It's a perfect song, actually, because it speaks exactly to what it is that I want to encourage us. We're, we're going we're gonna to hear that phrase a lot this, this, this Christmas. Christmas is a time to what? Christmas is a time to celebrate. Christmas is a time for family. Christmas is a time for, for food or whatever. What did we say before? Uh, let me remember it. God so loved the world that he sent in the phone when we saw Christmas is a time to love. So, here's how it goes. I'm going to sing it, and then you're going to sing it with me. I'm even going to teach you a desk camp for you sopranos out there. It'll be great. This is going to be so fun. All right? So it goes like this. Christmas is a time. Christmas is a time. Christmas is a time to love. Christmas is a time, Christmas is a time, Christmas is a time to love. Think you can handle that? If you can't, there's a problem, all right? So sing it with me. Christmas is a time, Christmas is a time, Christmas is a time to love. Christmas is a time, Christmas is a time, Christmas is a time to love. Now I'm just going to quick teach you the desk camp, just because it makes it so pretty later on, all right? It goes like this. Christmas is a time to love. Christmas is a time to love. Okay, so when we get to that part, I'll say descant. Some of you sing the chorus. Some of you sing the descant. It's going to be great. All right, here we go. Christmas is a time. Christmas is a time. 
Christmas is a time to love. Christmas is a time. Christmas is a time. Christmas is a time to love. We often start to worry and people get upset when things don't go all right on Christmas Day. What we should remember in all the push and shove is Christmas is a time to love. Christmas is a time. Christmas is a time. Christmas is a time to love. Christmas is a time. Christmas is a time. Christmas is a time to love. Maybe things don't sound right or look the way they should, and maybe they're not perfectly in tune. It's from the record. It really doesn't matter. Let's keep our eyes above, 'cause Christmas is a time to love. With the descant, Christmas is a time. Christmas is a time. Christmas is a time to love. Christmas is a time. Christmas is a time. Christmas is a time to love. Now that's going to be stuck in your head for the rest of the week. You're welcome. Actually, if it does get stuck in your head, I'm fine with that. Because honestly, I can't think of a better thing this time of year to have playing over and over. It's it's God's story. God's story is that He loved you. He loved me so much that in a mean and lowly place where rejection was real, where isolation was part of the story, to people who had been forgotten and rejected, God showed love, and He continues to do today, through you, in you. To the world around you, Christmas truly is a time to love. Would you pray with me, living God, hope of the world in Jesus Christ? You have loved us, and you continue to show and make your love known to us. And Lord, it speaks to us in our hearts when we are poor, poor in spirit. When we feel isolated or alone, when we feel rejected, when we feel the pain and the suffering of the world, pain, Lord, that comes from difficult things, hard stuff, broken relationships, diagnoses, 
challenging families, whatever it is, Lord. Your love speaks into those places and reminds us over and over again that that's been your story the whole time. Your story is a story of love to the lonely, the rejected, the isolated, the forgotten. And we receive that story in our heart of hearts. We thank you for it. Because it's what we need. Because in you there's hope. There's life. There's light. There's purpose. There's a future. There's an eternity in Jesus And it's something that we can't earn. It's something that we don't deserve. But it is something that you give us. And for that we are grateful. Lord, equip us through the power of your spirit to go from this place, sharing that to those who so desperately need to hear it. In Christ we pray. Amen.